Hello, and welcome to the Sawyer Seminar Bites podcast, hosted by the Boston University Center on Forced Displacement. This podcast showcases talks hosted by our Sawyer Seminar series on border regimes, a grant generously funded by the Mellon Foundation. My name is Chandra Beck, the podcast director here at the Center, and today we will be listening to a segment of the March Sawyer Seminar that we hosted with the University of Rio Grande Valley in Texas, entitled The U.S.-Mexico Border Regime, Trauma, Hospitality, Art, and Protest. This talk is given by Azalea Aleman Bendix, a retired senior litigation counsel and federal public defender in the Southern District of Texas, entitled the criminalization of immigration at the U.S.-Mexico border. Welcome, everybody. Good morning. I think uh, everyone did a great job of, of introducing our part of the world, and thank you for letting it be known that this is not a war zone, Like, despite the fact that the media paints it as so. Um, this is actually a very peaceful community. I think there's a lot to be learned from the, our part of the world. I'm born and raised here in the Rio Grande Valley. And so when I'm being asked questions, please feel free to ask uh, anything that you would ask any resident from this community. I was raised in a time when people would come and go very freely between our part of the world and Mexico. Um, and we had families on both sides of the border. And it was um, something that we understood where people would come work usually between February and November, would go home from the holidays. Most of the people would go home for the holidays. And we were taught to respect people who were our neighbors um, and they respected us. We had a symbiotic relationship because we understood when they were doing well, we were doing well. When they were not doing well, we were also suffering. And I believe that that has been lost in the way that we talk about immigrants today. Um, the world that I have been living in, I've been practicing law for over 30 years. I am retired, but I've been working essentially in the criminal justice system for over 30 years. And so I've been working in this building, the federal federal building in McAllen, Texas, for over 19 years. And it's a world that is very insulated. This entire building, it's an 11-story building, um, is filled with uh, three district court judges, um, three magistrate judges' uh, offices, uh, district clerk's offices, prosecutors, defenders, probation officers, district clerks, a whole system. But it's a very insulated system that I think a lot of people in our community don't know about. Uh, unless you're somehow tied to this organization or know somebody who works here, I think a lot of the people in this community don't know what happens in this building. And that's what I'm here to share with you. Um, when I was working for the Federal Public Defender's Office, I actually had quite a, my hands tied in terms of how much I could talk about um, and criticize uh, the administration and what was happening there. We have, have what's called the Hatch Act. And so I was technically an employee of the federal government. And so I was I'm not necessarily allowed to criticize what the federal government was doing. Um, or I had to be very careful not to get involved in the politics. Um, I was motivated. I consider myself now to be an immigrants' rights advocate. Um, and so now I don't have my hands tied. I can now, uh, I believe, very clearly say that I saw some human rights abuses and um, that's what motivated me to start this work. It was in 2018 um, that I started doing this work. And I believe that it needs to be known what we have done as a country. It's things that I feel very ashamed of. 
and that I believe that we need to take responsibility for. Um, I worked where the little star is, that's McAllen division. So I was an attorney, one of approximately 77 attorneys in the Southern District of Texas, but uh, my boss was based out of Houston, chosen by the Fifth Circuit. And we had actually three offices along the Southern border. It was Brownsville, McAllen and Laredo. And when I was hired in 2003, I think I was attorney number four or five. And by the time I left last year, I think I was one of 17 or 18 lawyers in the McAllen office alone. So there was this huge jump in terms of how many people were working in our office. And that's because the whole federal system has changed within the last 18 years. Our priorities as a country have changed in terms of who, what we think is important to prosecute on the federal level, and nobody's talking about this. Um, and I think that that's what we need to understand uh, who we are. These five districts are the judicial districts along the U.S.-Mexico border, and they account for a huge percentage of all federal cases in the, in the system throughout the country. There's 94 judicial districts throughout the entire United States. These five districts account for a huge percentage of, of all cases. Um, and that's because of this criminalization of illegal entry um, that has been only been around for the last 18 years or so. See, this country, we know uh, basically all but the Native Americans and the Mexicans uh, who were here before it was the United States uh, is all immigrants, right? Uh, we know that this country was being built and encouraged people to come. And the first wave of immigrants in the first hundred years or so were from Northern and Western Europe. And the idea was we need you to come because we're, we're taking over this land and we need more of you to come. And then before 1921, the idea was who are we trying to exclude, right? So, and they were all very blatantly racist laws. They were aimed uh, first at the Chinese, this 1881 Chinese Exclusion Act. They had brought the Chinese workers to build the railroads and all these other things, but suddenly there were too many of them. So we needed to keep them out, right? And so we, we came up with the Chinese Exclusion Act as a country. And then in 1924, the Immigration Act came about. It was all about nativism and eugenics. We don't talk nearly enough about that, but eugenics had a very strong foothold in this country uh, in the 1920s up until the 1940s. And the idea behind all of it was we're trying to maintain the, the, the pure breed of people that we had as the original settlers of this country. In fact, the quotas that were originally set were based on the original immigrants to this country. Of course, some of the original immigrants were also forced migrants, right? The slave trade was strong in this country. That was forced migration. Uh, but when I talk about the quota system, they were trying to maintain the Northern and Western Europe European um, people to come in. And so they had quotas and numerical caps. In 1929, it's the first time uh, that it became a crime to cross uh, the border uh, crossed into the United States through the river, essentially. That was the Undesirable Aliens Act. And it was specifically aimed at Mexicans because, again, there were suddenly too many of them. Um, and in the 1930s, approximately 44,000 Mexicans were prosecuted. And yet for the next 65 years, it was on the books as a law 
it was a crime to come into the United States, and yet it wasn't really prosecuted. And that's because we needed them. We had World War II. Our men were off at work, and we needed the, uh, the workers, right? In fact, not only did we need them, we had the Bracero program. We gave them permits to come, right? And even though when we decided that program was over, we rounded them all up, including some U.S. citizens, and took everybody back to Mexico, right? Uh, but we needed them, and so this country traditionally has ebbed and flowed according to whether or not we needed immigrants. Um, and so the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act is basically the version of what we have in place now. What changed the federal system and the criminalization of illegal entry was the 2005 Operation Streamline, which is the beginning of uh, the increased criminalization of immigration. I was hired in 2003 with, in anticipation of the fact that this was coming. Um, and 2018 Operation Zero Tolerance took it to a whole new level. So this, uh, this chart is basically two different things. The bottom line is the illegal re-entry felony convictions. And that's what I did in all the years that I was representing people. The bottom line is all the people charged with coming into the country as felons. See, none of these crimes have I ever thought of as serious crimes. I've always thought of them as sort of a waste of money and they're trespassing crimes because they're very simple to prosecute. It's essentially, I would tell my clients, your body is the evidence. You're here, right? And there's no way we can deny that you're not here. So uh, the only thing they would have to prove was you're a non-citizen in the United States. You have no permission to be here from U.S. authorities. You had previously been removed and you're present now in the United States. So very simple. The majority, 99% of them plead guilty because the system rewards them and the punishment comes down when they plead guilty. Uh, we would explore derivative citizenship, et cetera, but really very little defense to these kind of cases. And most of them would plead guilty. I never felt um, bad for why these people were being prosecuted because the reality is most of them had pretty serious criminal history. Um, they'd lived in this country, they had murder convictions, rape convictions, robbery convictions. I understood why in some ways the government was not was was prosecuting them. I didn't feel some kind of moral conviction for uh or upset about it necessarily. I didn't want them to be my neighbors. Um, I thought it was a waste of money. Uh, they were sending them, sending them to prison for four or five, six years and then deporting them. A waste of money for sure, but oh well. The top line, the blue line, is the misdemeanor convictions. And that's what really got out of control under the prior administration and what prompted me to start doing this work. Misdemeanor convictions, people getting prosecuted for coming into the country who had never been in this country before. And in the prior administration, it was the first time I saw people who were seeking asylum being criminally prosecuted, which I believe was a violation of our obligations under U.S. law and our, uh, a violation of our duty under international law as well. And so that's when I believe uh, I started doing this work. It needed to be said. And like I said, the felony convictions, uh, it, they were facing anywhere between zero to two, zero to 10 or zero to 20 years. The average sentence is 18 months imprisonment. So we were spending about $50,000 per prisoner um, and then they'd get deported. Uh, 
Operation Streamline was, uh, like I said, something that started in Del Rio in the Western District of Texas. It spread to the Rio Grande Valley and it started under President George W. Bush. If you think about the history of the United States, all of this was post 9-11. And that's when the federal government got reshuffled and the Department of Homeland Security became this monster powerful organization and this idea of we should be afraid of the foreigner really came about and that was played up right the nativists took over we should be afraid of all foreigners and even though the the terrorists who came and bombed our trade centers were had come in legally, had come in uh, with visas, even though that was the case, suddenly the war was on all illegals. And by the way, 85% of all Border Patrol is on the southern border, uh, and only 5% is on the northern border. As far as I was concerned, someone decided along the way, the war needed to be a war on immigrants, and, and, and decided they decided no more war on drugs. We're not winning it anyway. Let's do a war on immigrants instead. It's so much easier uh, to send our resources there. Uh, started under President George Bush in his second term. It continued under President Obama. He was known as the deporter in chief uh, and it continued under President Trump and essentially has continued under President Biden as well. Zero tolerance policies, what took it to a whole new level. That's when Attorney General Jeff Sessions started prosecuting all uh, kinds of folks. Let me show you what it looked like. In the federal building, they would show up in buses in the back of the building. People had been detained at the Border Patrol station for about three days. They were still wearing the clothes that they had crossed the river in. Um, they would come shackled at their ankles and at their wrists. Um, they would come in about three or four buses. They would bring them through the back. You can see that they're trying to avoid the camera here, but they would make them face the wall. They've got one Border Patrol agent and the rest of them are contract officers. They're, the U.S. Marshal is there in the beige pants. He's required to um, be in charge of all court security. Thank God this actually, we have a fire zone uh, limit in terms of how many people they can bring uh, because they were bringing 150 people a day to prosecute at one point, 75 in the morning and 75 in the afternoon. They'd have to put them all, like stuff them into an elevator and bring them up to the eighth floor so that we could talk to them. This is what it looked like to be in a misdemeanor courtroom. We as federal defenders were 17 lawyers, four investigators. They would bring them in at eight in the morning, take off those shackles. Um, you can imagine that because they were still wearing the clothes that they had crossed the river in, it was a very uh, powerful smell. As soon as you got off the elevator and went into this room, um, these people were shell-shocked. Many of them had been through trauma along the way. Um, and um, uh, we were talking to them uh, in Spanish, of course. We would address them as a group, and we had some information about their background. But then we would have to interview them in about five or ten minutes and have to get them ready for court. So by nine o'clock, they needed to be ready. And we had a lot of pressure from the judges. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? That was what we were supposed to do, have them ready. And so we've had a lot of criticism as federal defenders, and I think valid criticism in terms of was that really due process? that they received because we'd have to explain to them it's a criminal charge you have a right to remain silent you have a right to a jury trial or a right to plead guilty it's your decision to make and they're 
just shell-shocked, right? They don't even know what's happening. And by the way, I'm seeking asylum, right? And we're like, this is not the asylum system. This is a criminal justice system. And until you get through this criminal justice system, nothing about asylum is going to be heard. Uh, and we don't know if you're even going to get a credible fear interview. None of this is going to be ha happened until you get through this criminal justice system. But as defenders, we knew because most of them had no criminal history that it served them to actually plead guilty because most of them got a time served sentence. Time served for us meant that the three days they had been detained was the end of their criminal punishment, right? So we knew that it didn't we would only buy them time if they wanted to go to trial, which they could, but there was really no defense. They were non-citizens and they had no permission to be here. And most of them admitted that they had come through the river. That was the crime for them. Coming through the river is the crime. Most of them, 99% pled guilty, right? And they would receive, like I said, time served sentences. Most of them never came into U.S. Marshal custody. If they wanted a trial and if they had previously been removed, they would probably be prosecuted as felons instead. And we just bought them about five months more in custody. Um, and and then after that, they'd either be taken to the bridge and deported or taken to Port Isabel and flown out of the country. Um, just so you know, very clearly, this zero tolerance was aimed at the Northern Triangle country. Suddenly, they were not prosecuting Mexicans. Suddenly, it was all about Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. And very specifically, um, they were taking about 25% of all of our clients had their children taken away. We were hearing these horrible stories, and we could only represent them on their criminal cases. We brought in the Texas Civil Rights Project to help us because we knew they really didn't want to talk about their criminal cases. They only wanted to know where were their children. And understandably so, right? Uh, we would have them stand up. Who here has been separated for, from a child? And they would stand up and we'd have the Texas civil rights people standing right behind us trying to take down the information on the children all before nine o'clock to try and track those children down. Um, no one has ever been held accountable for that atrocity. And I think that they used what I used to consider a justice system to torture these people, right? That's what has never been talked about. And a black uh, part of our history that it will someday be written about, uh, what they would do is they would, at the Border Patrol station, separate them into different sections. This is the little boys between eight and 10 who were put into a different section. Often my clients would say that they could hear their kids crying on a different section of the Border Patrol station. Some of them were separated the morning they were brought to court, right? And we're holding them, we're sleeping next to them and were brought to court and left them behind sleeping. And they would come and swoop them up into ORR custody um, before, before they were returned to the court. Even though at the beginning we thought time served sentence, they're getting reunited with their children immediately. That's what we thought, but we were wrong. They were sweeping them up into the system and deporting the parents. Very little children, right? These are the children who were taken to the Cayuga Center in New York. These shelters, there were hundreds all over the country. They, these children didn't know their names, and we were trying to get the lists from the government, and they refused. I'm telling you, there was no transparency. And and they were downright cruel in terms of trying to hide what they were doing. Um, 
the shelters were calling us trying to find the names of the parents because they would ask the children, who's your mommy, mommy, who's your daddy, Bobby, right? That's all they knew. And we would say, what are you doing to track the families? And they would say, we're taking pictures of the family. We were disgusted, right? And yet the courts were doing nothing to stop it. Unfortunately, only ACLU had a civil suit that was able to stop it. There's this wonderful article written by Caitlin Dickerson called, we need to take away the children. It really has a really good um, play about how it is that this came about. No one thought this could happen in the United States of America, but no one stopped it either. And it talks about how that happened. My Boy Will Die of Sorrow is a wonderful book written by a friend of mine with the Texas Civil Rights Project. It details how it went about. So lastly, in 2020, before the pandemic, 59% of all federal cases throughout the country were immigration cases. This is where we chose to prioritize um, our criminal justice system, uh, whereas 27% were based on drugs and 14% were all other cases. Now this all plummeted, right, with the, with the COVID pandemic where we started relying on Title 42 and just expelling everyone instead. But remember, I believe that this system will be built up again. As soon as Title 42 is lifted, this system has already been built and everybody's budget depends on this, right? This Southwest border has prosecutors defend um, agents, Border Patrol agents, um, probation officers, everyone's budget depends on this. And so I believe it will be filled again. This monster of mass incarceration will be fed again with uh, immigrants. And I don't know that there's a way to disassemble this system. I do believe it's affected our community. There are Border Patrol agents who are good people, but I think that the mentality, uh, the callousness is something that is required, a desensitizing to do their job, and that has infiltrated our community as well. And it's something that I feel is very sad to see and uh, has impacted who we are as a community, and I hope it can be reversed. For more information on the Sawyer Seminar series on border regimes and for upcoming events, go check out the Sawyer Seminar website, linked in the description. This Sawyer Seminar series is made possible with funding support from the Mellon Foundation. This podcast is produced by Boston University's Center on Forced Displacement in collaboration with all members of the team.